Stop the press, it's on! After two sellout events, the Wellness Summit returns to Melbourne in 2015 for two days of powerhouse wellness with your favourite wellness couch hosts and Australia's wellness elite. Join us at the Melbourne Convention Centre on Saturday, August 15th and Sunday 16th for an inspirational, educational, edutaining, fun, exciting, sensational cocktail of wellness that promises to help you take your life to the next level. Now, if you want very special access to our limited two-for-one tickets, then make sure you go to www.thewellnesscouch.com, enter your name and email address, and get on the early bird list. So pop the dates in the diary, and we'll see you there. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts, Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Christoph, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into your lives. My name is Dr. Brett Hill, and once again this week, I'm without my regular co-host Damien and Lawrence, because uh, I'm still on tour on the Paleo Way Tour with Pete Evans and Luke Hines, which has been absolutely fantastic. And one of the coolest things about this tour has been the privilege of once again listening to this lady who I'm about to introduce. She is an absolute wealth of information and knowledge and science that is about to get downloaded into your head, which I'm really excited about. So she's the author of Primal Body, Primal Mind. Um, please welcome to the show, Nora Gagardis. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Brad. I really, uh, I, it's really great to be here, and I, I guess I've been on that paleo show before, yeah. but uh, here I'm making my debut on The Wellness Guys, so great to be here. So let's start right from the start. Tell us about your journey uh, as a practitioner. You know, how did that start? Um, well, I got started in the field of neurofeedback about 20 years ago, and, and uh, for uh, about 12 years now I've been in private practice in Portland, Oregon, uh, working with a whole variety of, of people and, and, and issues. But I'm also a nutritional therapist, nutritional consultant, and that sort of thing. And so that factors into what I have been working at as a new neurofeedback provider as well. So I work a lot with the brain and anything that has to do uh, with the brain, which is just about everything <laughs> relating to human health. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's been a rewarding uh, journey along the way. I've learned a massive amount, and I try to take what I have learned as a practitioner and apply it uh, to what I have written about and am speaking about on this tour. So neurofeedback, a lot of people listening won't have any idea what that is. So can you give us a, a brief introduction to what is neurofeedback and how, how have you used that to help people? Because you've got some pretty amazing stories in that regard as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, what neurofeedback is, is basically a form of EEG biofeedback. Many people are more familiar with the term biofeedback and, uh, you know, from the 70s and whatever. And biofeedback is basically predicated on the idea that any autonomic function that you can become consciously aware of, you can learn to, you know, control in some way, manage in some way. And it's usually all about just sort of eliciting a parasympathetic response, a calm, relaxed response in people. And, it, and traditionally it uses peripheral measures like breathing, heart rate, galvanic skin response, which is sweat gland activity, um, um, heart rate variability training would fall into that category, um, skin temperature, things like that. 
And so uh, traditionally a, a biofeedback therapist might hand you a thermometer and tell you to focus on trying to raise your skin temperature on that thermometer. And as that happens, and as you learn to be able to do that, uh, what you're doing is stimulating your, your blood vessels on the periphery of your body to relax, which means you're also eliciting a relaxation response at the same time. And eventually, after lots and lots of practice, uh, you can become more proficient at being able to kind of draw upon that whenever you need it. Now, with neurofeedback, we're dealing directly with the electrical activity in the brain, and as such, the feedback's happening way faster than anybody can consciously process. So the brain is basically getting information about itself in real time and through the raw EEG uh, and through various filters that we use to... Uh, you know, we're, we're placing electrode sensors on your scalp in specific areas that are associated with different kinds of functions. Different areas of the brain are localized for different functions. And, and then as a trainer, as a neurofeedback provider or therapist, basically I'm adjusting things like the training frequency and the inhibit strategy in order to give your brain the right information that it needs in order to make, be able to regulate itself better. Okay, so at what stage along this journey, obviously you're doing this neurofeedback, you're getting some great results, but, but at some stage along the journey you've realized that food was playing a really big part in this, particularly as it relates to the nervous system. So what was it that sort of sparked you along this whole journey towards looking at food in more detail as well? Well, it was pretty early on actually. I was, I was working at a clinic, uh, I was actually supervising a clinic down in Eugene, Oregon, and when I arrived at the clinic, uh, there was a young boy uh, there that was one of one of my clients that had been diagnosed with ADHD and Tourette's and whatever, and it had been a real struggle for him and his family. And we actually were having kind of a hard time getting at his symptoms, and the whole family was frustrated. And it was one day I came in, you know, or, or he came into the office, and we were walking down the hall to the room, and he looked really depressed. And I said, talk to me, what's going on? And he said, well, he said, I was ticking on the way over here, and... And my, you know, and it was driving my mom crazy, and she blew up, you know, at me, and now I feel bad, and she feels bad. And I said, well, tell me why you feel bad. What, you know, what's going on? I said, are you feeling angry? Are you feeling frustrated? Are you feeling guilty? 11-year-old male, right? Um, he said, I feel guilty. I can't possibly know what it's like for her to have a son like me. And she can't know what it's like for me either. And I'm just frustrated, he says, and I, I just, I hate this ADHD, I hate this Tourette's, I hate all the ticking, and he kind of kicks the desk and he slumps in the chair, and I'm like, okay, something's wrong with this picture, because this kid wants to be helped. Mm. Why can't we get at this? So I said, kid, sit tight, I'm going to go and talk to your mom. So I go out to the waiting room, I said, mom, talk to me. She bursts into tears. I don't know what's going on. It's two steps forward, one step back. I think we're making progress, and then we backslide. So I said, talk to me about what this kid's eating. I just, the light bulb went off in my head because that was this whole other hat that I wore that I realized was probably appropriate to take out in that moment. And my instincts were really good. I mean, it turns out the kid was a total carbivore, I call it, you know, the kid's eating a carbohydrate-based diet. His, you know, the, in his intake of quality proteins and fats was almost non-existent. And I gave her my basic homily about you know, you know, why don't you make this particular transition, you know, with him? Try this out for just two weeks. Sorry. And, and, uh, and then, you know, let's see. 
And I said, you know, and she's like, ah, that sounds kind of hard. And I'm like, well, anybody can do anything for two weeks. And she thought about it and she said, okay, the whole family's going to do this together. Because otherwise it'll be unfair to him. So yeah, okay, we'll give it a try. One week later, we had a normal kid. One week later. And the only thing that kid was left with that, uh, that was hard was carbohydrate cravings. Because at that point, you know, he, he wasn't being given, you know, carbs. He was being given, you know, he was, he was eating a much better diet, but he was still craving. So there are things you can do with neurofeedback to help with that. And I talked to my boss and he says, oh, you're the boss. You go in, you know, you do that. And, uh, you know, whatever it takes. And so we switched the protocol. We addressed with some supplementation, some things that could help him through that. And he did great. And nobody had to police him. He policed himself because it just, it totally changed his life. And I'm still in touch with that kid. Now he's a grown man. He's married, you know, and all of that. But um, it, it, I've maintained a, a connection uh, through all these years. It's just kind of periodically I hear from him, and, and it's really rewarding. But one of the things that happened as an outgrowth of that is that my boss sat me down in a, in a room behind closed doors and said, I want you doing what you did with that kid with every patient that comes <laughs> in this office. And it just couldn't be done by just talking at people while I was trying to train them. So in a, in a fit of frustration, I sat down at my computer one weekend and I um, just started typing, and I came up with about a 10-page article that I just started handing out, you know, and then I thought, oh, but I forgot to mention this, and I need to mention that, and whatever. <laughs> I can't and imagine you only writing 10 pages. No, right, it, yeah. Well, this is the way I type. I'm a two-finger typist, basically. My two index fingers are how I typed my whole book, in fact, and... Uh, and then uh, people would come in and say, well, you know, medical practitioners, and they'd say, well, this is very interesting information, but where do you get that? And it's like, oh, yeah, I should be providing citations. So I started adding the citations in. And it eventually mushroomed into about a 100-page manuscript that made the rounds. I used to go to Kinko's and copy it off and give it out to my, you know, clients and stuff. And eventually um, I came into a whole bunch more information, and I had some real kind of wake-up, you know, there were things that really, really um, um, helped me connect a whole bunch more dots. And suddenly I thought, wow, there's just a lot more I need to get down. And I might as well do this in a way that will be publishable at this point. And that was, you know, where Primal Body, Primal Mind came from. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's obviously, that's really clear when you look at your book. I mean, it really is like the one-stop shop, like everything you need to know, all of the information from such a informative, research-based perspective. It's it's really, you know, if you really are inspired to learn this stuff, like if you really want to learn the nitty-gritty, then, uh, you know, this is obviously the book that Pete's been recommending to everyone. So a lot of people have now picked it up in Australia, which is awesome. But it, it really just does have the whole picture in there. So, you know, uh, just dumbing that book down to maybe just a, you know, a short description, you know, what is what is primal body, primal mind mean to you? You know, how does your approach, well, what is your approach? And perhaps maybe how does it differ to what people often think of as a paleo diet as well? Well, uh, there's a, the answer to that is, is basically embedded in the subtitle, which is Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. So, you know, you know when you talk about the paleo diet, we're talking about, and one of the things I'm, I, I commonly say is it, there are almost as many definitions of paleo as there, out, as there are people out there talking about it. You know, what we're fundamentally talking about is, you know, typically a hunter-gatherer diet uh, based on the foods that we would have been exposed to as a as a, an evolving species over maybe two two point six million years or so of evolution, but but there's a lot 
you know, in there because we've lived through a lot of different climatic changes during that time. There have been many, many people groups all over the world eating extremely varied diets depending upon local availability of foods. Um, there were varying degrees of macronutrients consumed, some, you know, like the Inuit ate virtually zero carbohydrates, and then you would go to the uh, certain places in the tropics and they were, you know, they had access to, you know, relatively frequently to things like fruit, which in the temperate areas uh, really was only a seasonal availability thing. So what ultimately is paleo? And w the more important question to me wasn't so much what is paleo, but it was you know, just because our ancestors ate something, does that mean that we should be doing the same thing now? And uh, how would we know? And where I went for that answer was into some something that our ancestors really didn't have access to, and that's modern-day science and particularly the realm of longevity research. And it turns out that it's perfectly possible to take many of these basic uh, principles that are consistent with what our you know, we are genetically best adapted for. And we can incorporate that um, or blend it with some of the best information in longevity research to really get the best of both worlds. And that's really the approach to paleo that, um, that, uh, that I take on in, in my book. And it is not a high-protein diet. It is not a, a diet that is based on slabs and slabs and slabs of meat and, you know, whatever else. Um, it's a diet that basically minimizes <clears throat> our consumption of sugar and starch. And there are very, very good reasons for doing that. And I go into exhaustive detail as to why that is in my book. And then moderate our protein intake to what we need. You know, we, we are designed to get our protein from animal source foods, and we are best designed to do that. However, that doesn't mean that more is better. Eating enough um, very high quality protein from a variety of sources and nose to tail, right? You know, including the organ mates and whatever else. Um, and just meeting our basic protein requirements that way, but not overly exceeding them. Um, by overly exceeding them, we actually upregulate certain metabolic pathways that may be helpful if you're in the process of growing. Maybe you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant or you uh, have a baby or growing child or a teenager that is making lots and lots of new cells or needs to, then the extra protein is helpful for that. But in a person that doesn't need to be making lots of extra cells, anything that stimulates extra cells also runs you the risk of developing cancers. So by moderating the protein intake, we're, we're in effect um, <clears throat> cooling down that metabolic pathway that stimulates new cell development or cell new cell division um, and it upregulates instead uh, a condition of maintenance, uh, active maintenance and repair. Now, when you're, you know, when you're in that reproductive mode, it's like saying out with the old and in with the new. And that's basically nature's way is, you know, uh, you know everything in this world eventually you know, re either reproduces or doesn't reproduce, grows old and dies, and then on to the next generation. And... Uh, and nature doesn't cry any crocodile tears. Nature is just basically interested in the perpetuation of life, not necessarily in the longevity of you and me. So if we really, if we as individuals want to live a longer life, we have to look for some of Mother Nature's loopholes. And longevity research has done that and figured out that by 
by minimizing the mechanisms that drive cellular proliferation, which include both excessive protein, but also include uh, anything that drives insulin levels. Insulin is the primary mitigator of your how long you live and how healthy you are. The less of a need that you give yourself for insulin over the course of your life, the longer you will live and the healthier you will be. And the primary macronutrient that stimulates insulin, you know, release in the body is our, it's sugars and starches. And um, so by limiting uh, that, you're basically cooling down those mechanisms and instead upregulating, uh, you know, you're basically taking on an anti-aging approach is what you're doing and a very stabilizing approach. Nice. I'm really interested in this longevity stuff because I've heard a number of people talking recently about longevity and they've suggested that perhaps a plant-based diet might be the way to go and, and that was what the evidence was showing in terms of longevity. I've, I've listened to other people say that actually it doesn't seem like diet has as much to do with longevity as we thought. Maybe it's to do with other lifestyle factors. So you're shaking your head here, so I'd love to hear what you've got to say on this. Yeah, I do because the same mechanisms I just discussed would also engage in say like a raw food vegan diet, for instance. Now that was one that didn't incorporate too much fruit, but if you're just talking about just somebody who's gonna just gonna eat a bunch of raw vegetables, right, and sprouts and stuff like that, well, you were pretty much minimizing your need for insulin. Now fruit, you know, fructose also minimizes insulin uh, secretion because it is a low glycemic sugar. The problem is it's very damaging in terms of glycation. So that there, there are trade-offs with fruit. But, um, but assuming you're just sort of doing just lots of fibrous vegetables and greens and sprouts, well, you're activating the same beneficial mechanisms. You're minimizing your need for insulin in that instance. You're also minimizing your uh, potential for activating those metabolic pathways. The metabolic pathway I'm talking about is one called mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. I talk about it in my book. I know you guys all know about this, but I just, you know, I thought I'd mention it. Um, but raw food veganism, uh, from that standpoint, would also tend to limit uh, the production of mTOR. And from those two standpoints, that is longevity enhancing, at least in the short term. The problem is, is that past a certain point, out. The other beneficial thing, I'll give one more beneficial thing, that a diet that's very high in vegetables and greens is also going to be pretty rich in antioxidants and phytonutrients, and it's going to um, be very detoxifying. And when we live in a toxic world, that there's there are a lot of benefits to that, very water-rich and all that kind of a thing. All that's very good. Where you start to arrive at diminishing returns is that we are not a species that is designed to extract all of our nutritional requirements from plant-based foods. We have many requirements for nutrients that cannot be gotten, no matter how much one may wish it were so, from plant-based foods. And past a certain point, there are going to be deficiency-related compromises that are going to infiltrate and start causing some real problems. In the short term, it can be a very therapeutically beneficial diet. Long term, we are not, you know, we don't have four stomachs. We don't have a fermentative-based digestive system designed to make optimal use of that type of diet. We have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system. I can enjoy all of the benefits of a raw food vegan diet without any of the potential detriments with what I'm doing. Because by minimizing sugar and starch, moderating my protein intake so that I'm actually meeting my requirements for complete protein, 
And then I eat as much fat as I need from a variety of natural and also animal-based sources, very rich in fat-soluble nutrients, again, many of which can only be found in animal source foods. And then I also eat a huge variety of fresh vegetables and greens, um, and I probably eat more vegetables than most vegetarians do. In fact, even you know vegans do. Um, and so I get all the benefits of that without any of the drawbacks and without any potential nutrient deficiencies. Um, so can you talk a little bit about some of those nutrient deficiencies? You know, if I was on a raw vegan diet, you know, what sort of stuff am I potentially missing out on? Well, I know that, for instance, beta carotene is not vitamin A. It is pro-vitamin A. But that conversion is not necessarily a simple process, nor can everybody do it. Young children cannot do it. Before about the age of six, they cannot make those metabolic conversions from beta-carotene to preformed vitamin A. It may be one reason why kids don't like vegetables. They're just not able to make optimal use of them. I'm not saying that there aren't good, other good things in vegetables for them, but it takes anywhere from 6 to 20 units of beta-carotene to make a single unit of vitamin A. And preformed vitamin A, retinol or retinoic acid, can only be found in animal source foods, only. Um, same thing with vitamin K2. K1 can be found in vegetables, but K1 is not K2. And K2 is, is intimately involved in the way your body metabolizes and, and, and utilizes uh, minerals, and, and in particular calcium, and is critical for healthy bones and teeth and, and also for um, mitigating the way your body utilizes minerals so that you're not mineralizing things that were not meant to be mineralized, you know, like your arteries and your heart and your pineal glands and your joints. And vitamin D. Uh, yes, there is the kind of vitamin, there is a, an, a form of vitamin D2 that can be gotten in plants. Um, however, uh, in order for vitamin D2 to be made useful, you have to expose it to not only sunlight, but but a fair amount, you have to have a fair amount of cholesterol in your body in order to make that conversion to activated vitamin D3. Now, sunshine is a great way to make vitamin D3, but our ancestors also consumed, on average, of, uh, you know, estimated by Dr. Weston Price's work anyway, about 10 times more than what we get today in our diets. And the primary f source of vitamin D3 dietarily is animal fats. So... Um, animal fats are a primary source. There is no vegan source of vitamin D3. And if you live in any place other than the equator, and you and and although lots of people live in sunny places, you know, uh, like Australia and whatever else, and have problems with sufficient vitamin D intake because we're an indoor species now, we rely on artificial sunlight in the form of electricity, and spend all our time indoors. And then when we're outside. We're, we're not only clothed, but we're slathering ourselves with um, sunscreen and things like that, which blocks the uh, uh, blocks our ability to produce vitamin D. So um, that is also an issue. Everybody knows that B12 is another issue, and there are B12 analogs in things like you know certain types of nutritional yeasts and algaes and things like that. Uh, however, those are not usable by us in the same way, and they may actually increase our requirement for, for preformed, uh, you know, particularly methylcobalamin, which is uh, the form that is, you know, most active in the brain. And we have, you know, if you stop consuming all B12 today, you, you may, if you're lucky, have a, a good five-year supply 
before that runs out. That's the only B vitamin we store. And once that runs out, then you start suffering irreparable neurological damage. And I will tell you, in my years of working with the brain and nervous system, by far the most intractably damaged um, brains and nervous systems I have ever worked with, hands down, have been hardcore vegans. Yeah. Um, Just really, really rough shape, uh, a lot of them. And, uh, and at that point, by the time they end up in my office, they're desperate for help and willing to do whatever it takes. The problem is, is that, you know, once all the B12 has been gone for a while, there is damage that takes place that, that, you know, you know, may not be able to repair. It's worth trying for sure, but, um, problematic. And, and what about the EPA and DHA for the brain as well? <clears throat> exactly. So omega-3s. Um, vegans are told all you have to do is lots of flax oil and walnuts and chia seeds and sachet nichi oils and things like that in order to meet your omega-3 requirements. This is not true. That plant form omega-3, alpha-linolenic acid, requires the action, actually requires multiple steps of elongation in order to become the form that we most utilize, which is EPA and in the brain and nervous system, DHA, the storage molecule of omega-3. And um, there is an initial enzyme that's required for the start of that conversion called delta-60 saturase. If you are of northern European descent, if you are of Celtic descent, if you are of native descent, you may uh, not be able to you lack that enzyme and may not be able to make those conversions at all. In fact, you won't be able to make those conversions. But even if you're not from that background and you don't have any deficiencies that would uh, interfere with that conversion process and your thyroid's working great and everything else, from the flax oil that you consume, you are lucky at at the very end of it all to have a maximum of maybe 3 to 6% EPA from that elongation process. And you may not make any DHA from that at all. So DHA is something that is, in our food supply, exclusively found in animal source foods. Now, I know that there is a specific type of plankton now that is being um, harvested by nutritional supplement companies, and and the DHA in that is being extracted through some rather uh, questionable means, uh, using chemicals and whatever have you, and that seems to be uh, a plant-based form of DHA, but it's expensive it's uh, being extracted in questionable fashion that may have chemicals involved, and it is not. I never met anybody with an algae deficiency, so you know it's not. It's not a f- natural food source for us. So um, animal source foods are the primary source from entirely grass-fed animals, and also wild-caught, particularly cold-water seafood, and. Um, those are the primary places, pastured eggs a little bit, um, those are the primary places in which DHA in the human diet is, is supposed to come from. So for some people doing the paleo diet, and, and they, they may be having lots of fruit in their diet, they may be having lots of root vegetables, or they might be kind of the modern trend, there's lots of paleo treats. Yeah. And so for them, they might look at your book and think probably the major difference they're going to see there is, is probably a difference in the ratio of the sort of carbs, proteins, and fats. And, and you have a great analogy that you use for that in terms of the fire. Can you share that with our listeners? Okay, well, sure. So one of the reasons, again, that I am a advocate for minimizing the intake of sugar and starch. It's not that our ancestors never got those things. Some of them really didn't. I I will make the argument back 
you know. Times. Yeah, yeah, that that our ancestors really had a very, very limited access to sugars and starches. That just really wasn't a natural, uh, common source of, of food for us. However, regardless of that, obviously we're able to make use of those foods, so why not consume them as long as they come from natural sources? Well, part of what my my book is sets out to do is help people cultivate a metabolism that is based on fat burning instead of sugar burning. And there are lots and lots of very good reasons for this. One analogy that I like using to help people understand this a little bit better um, basically is based on the, on the fact that carbohydrates are fundamentally, you know, glucose is basically a form of rocket fuel for us. It's not the fuel that we were designed to rely upon as our primary source of fuel 24-7. And yet that's what our industrialized society has cultivated in us. And that's what all the advertising cultivates. And that's what, you know, 90% of what you see in grocery stores uh, is there for is to keep that sugar-burning metabolism going. And we only have a reliance on sugar as a primary source of fuel if we have cultivated an unnatural dependence on sugar as a primary source of fuel. But we're also designed to make, uh, we're designed to make use of more than one type of primary fuel, um, depending on availability and circumstances. And the other fuel is fat in the form of free fatty acids and ketones. And ketones are, of course, the energy units of fat. Now, you know, in the metabolic fuel duel between carbohydrates and fats, you know, the question is, okay, what's the better fuel? Well, again, I look upon carbohydrates as basically a form of metabolic kindling. Your, you know, beans and your brown rice and your, you know, root vegetables and um, things of that nature are basically the equivalent of twigs on that metabolic fire, the so-called complex carbs. And then, you know, you have your white potatoes, white rice, um, bread, pasta, things like that are basically the metabolic equivalent of crumpled up paper on that metabolic fire. And then you have things like, you know, alcohol and, and sugary beverages and juices and sports drinks and sodas. And these are basically the equivalent of throwing lighter fluid or gasoline on that metabolic fire. And if all you have to run that metabolic wood stove is kindling, well, you can do that, and that's the way we are conditioned to do that in this culture. But what are you actually, you know, doing? You are preoccupying yourself all day long with where that next handful of fuel is going to come from to feed that fire and keep it from going out and to keep you from getting uncomfortable. And it is a never-ending process. And if you're not thinking about it, you're going to be hit with cravings that force you to think about it. And you're going to notice big fluctuations in the way you feel and function if you don't have handfuls of fuel going into that fire at the right times. And you basically become a slave to that metabolic wood stove. Um, and if you happen to take your mind off of it and walk away from it for a while, um, um, or try to sleep through the night, which is an analogy that can be made with that, you know, you may find at 3 o'clock in the morning suddenly that you're wide awake, and yes, there's an analogy with that too, feeling anxious or whatever, and then you look in the wood stove and, oh, my God, the fire's going out. And you're scrambling to do what it takes to rebuild that fire again with lots of carbs. And what are most people's breakfasts like? They are basically a whole bunch of, of kindling. That's the way most people start their day is with a big old heap of kindling to get the fire going again. And, and just so that they can keep throwing more handfuls in throughout the rest of the day. 
But what's the alternative to that? What if instead you were to take a nice big fat log and throw that on the fire? Suddenly now, you're basically free to go about your business. That log is going to burn a very long time, um, and it's not going to need to be replenished very often. You can, and you don't have to think about it so much. You can sleep all the way through the night, and the next morning you look inside the wood stove, and the fire's burning down a little bit, you throw another log on, and then head back about your business. You're free. You don't have to be constantly preoccupied with this. And when you metabolically adapt yourself to an ongoing dependence on fat as a primary source of fuel, then basically what you've done is you've eliminated your constant need to eat. You've eliminated cravings. Um throughout the day, and you've also eliminated all the fluctuations in the way you feel and function that come with that. And uh, I consider that the most liberating possible thing anyone can do. Now, can you keep, you know, throwing kindling in? I, you know, yeah, people do that, but there are significant advantages to not doing that. And again, I, I detail that and there are multiple arguments for this uh, that I present in Primal Body, Primal Mind. So uh, I think that analogy helps make a lot of sense for people and, and the reason why it is smarter to be relying on fat as a primary fuel and, um, and minimizing your intake of, of sugar and starch, which, by the way, there is no human dietary requirement for, not in any medical textbook, not in any textbook of human physiology anywhere on the planet. We don't have to consume carbohydrate in order to have the amount of blood glucose that we actually need to get through a day, ever. We can manufacture all the glucose we need from a combination of protein and fat. So, um, so to me, that makes it a no-brainer. Well, thank you, Nora. As you can obviously tell, Nora could go on for hours and hours here. So I'm going to pull it up there because this has been a fantastic interview. We might have to get you back on again to keep going with some more of this information. But for those of you who have been sparked by this, obviously the book Primal Body, Primal Mind is a fantastic way to start. If you're already convinced and you think, hey, this lifestyle is the way I want to go, but I want some help implementing that, well, then Nora is also part of Pete's uh, Paleo Way program. So you can actually go to thepaleoway.com and you can sign up for the 10-week program there as well. So so make sure you check that out. Um, so until next week, you know, check us out on Facebook, check us out on Instagram and on Twitter. Go to iTunes. If you like the episode, leave a five-star rating for us. Join us next week on The Wellness Guys and let's help to change the world's health together. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.